We are so spoiled by the talent in our congregation. Thank you. The next reading comes from uh, Paul's first epistle to the church at Corinth, the first chapter, verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By God, you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And finally, this last reading from the prophet Isaiah. I'm reading from the Message Translation. Ordinarily, we read from the New Revised Standard Version, which is the more scholarly version. This is a more dynamic translation that seeks to capture the sense of the passage. Listen, far-flung islands. Pay attention, far-away people. God put me to work from the day I was born. The moment I entered the world, God named me. The Lord gave me speech that would cut and penetrate. God kept her hand on me to protect me. The Lord made me his straight arrow and hid me in his quiver. God said to me, you're my dear servant, Israel, through whom I'll shine. But I said, I've worked for nothing. I've nothing to show for a life of hard work. Nevertheless, I'll let God have the last word. I'll let God pronounce his verdict. And now, God says, this God who took me in hand from the moment of birth to be God's servant, to bring Jacob back home, to set a reunion for Israel. What an honor for me in God's eyes that God should be my strength. God says, but that's not a big enough job for my servant just to recover the tribes of Jacob, merely to round up the strays of Israel. I'm setting you up as a light for the nation so that my salvation becomes global. God, Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, says to the despised one, kicked around by the nation, slave labor to the ruling class, kings will see. Get to their feet, the princes too, and then fall on their faces in homage because of God, who has faithfully kept her word, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. 
O God, uphold me, that I may uplift thee. Amen. I've worked for nothing. I've nothing to show for a life of hard work. So says this mysterious servant in this mysterious passage in Isaiah. He could have been speaking for any number of people I've listened to recently. He could have been speaking for the black pastor who said to me last week, I've never been so down on America. The numbers of people who are armed is frightening. You can't go anywhere, not even in church, without the possibility of violence. And he made that comment before three white nationalists were arrested this week on charges that they were planning malicious activity at an upcoming gun rally in Virginia. Isaiah could have been speaking for a different person I listened to this week who shared that his own spotty church attendance was a result in part of being worn out by all of our talk about justice. I worked so hard to bring diversity, equity, and inclusion into my workplace, he told me, against so much resistance from people there, and yet at some point I started realizing that what I needed from church wasn't more talk of how to change the world. I needed my own thirsty well to be filled back up. Isaiah could have been speaking for my friend who moved out to the county because, in his words, I couldn't risk my 12-year-old black son to Baltimore City right now, as bad as it is. Or any number of church folk who have moved away from Baltimore because, in their words, I was finally exhausted by the failure to feel safe or to feel like my full diversity was recognized, or to feel like things could ever get better. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity, the servant in Isaiah says. And that servant could have been speaking for any number of us. The nurse working in shock trauma, watching bodies felled by bullets or opioids over and over and over The neighborhood leader watching more vacants springing up to replace the ones that they worked so hard to eradicate. The teacher struggling to teach amidst all our collective trauma, the rising levels of anxiety and depression in our children. The professor watching our whole society call knowledge itself into question. And the pastors, almost everyone I know, managing overall decline in the church in a Trumpian age when the eluding emotional state of many congregants seems to be rage and dissatisfaction. On this weekend, like so many times in the past, I have turned to Dr. King and other civil rights icons for edification. Turn to the Rosa Parks and Ella Bakers and Diane Nashes and Fred Shuttlesworths and Andy Youngs and Bob Moses of the world for inspiration. They seem to have found a way to keep pushing and brought about a significant down payment in changes that many of us believe in and hope to see. 
they found their way to keep hoping, to keep trusting, to keep believing while struggling through conditions just as bad or worse as the ones that we face today. I have looked to their stories for examples of hope and courage and so often found them there in bus seats they refused to concede, in voting rights they refused to yield, in civil rights legislation they fought for and won. Indeed, that's what I thought I had found again this year in the Freedom Rides of 1961. Those Freedom Riders caught my attention this year because of a comment that Taylor Branch made to me one year after he overheard me poo-pooing the hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, as the sappy, sentimental hymn of my Baptist youth. What a blessedness, what a peace is mine, leaning on the everlasting arms. You know, he told me that day, that's one of the hymns they sang in Montgomery, Alabama in 1961 when the Klan surrounded the church at night with Dr. King and John Lewis and Diane Nash and the Freedom Riders all trapped inside. Leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms. The words suddenly sounded a lot less sentimental. That night in the church followed one of the most courageous days of the civil rights movement. The Freedom Riders, I hope you will recall, were simply interracial busloads of people, mostly young people who decided to test their right to ride together through the South. The segregationist governments and the people they represented threatened violence and enacted it across their rides. When they got to Montgomery and dismounted the bus at the segregated bus station, the local police escort vanished, allowing mobs of white people to kick, beat, punch, and strike the Freedom Riders with fists and pipes and rocks. Protesters retreated to the First Baptist Church and were later surrounded by threatening mobs and the Alabama National Guard forcing an all-night standoff between the Kennedy White House and that Alabama governor who had declared martial law. Courage, indeed. And yet what struck me this year was not just the courage of that day and night, but the dissension that leaders in the movement navigated the next day. Young activists called on Dr. King to join them on the Freedom Rides, and he politely but forcefully declined. He was already on probation, and another arrest could have landed him in jail for three months or longer, too long of a time, he felt, to be absent from the movement at this point in its life. And some of the young people saw this as cowardice and said as much. I'm on probation and I'm going, said one. Me too, said another. Maybe I noticed the dissension this year because this kind of internal dissension, stress, judgment, and critique has been at the heart of just about every organization that I have been a part of this past year. And I sense the weariness of so many would-be warriors for justice, 
Or maybe I notice it because it seems to me that people who are committed to justice-making in their lives and in the world, sometimes we seem to tear each other apart more than the external opposition. We are all susceptible to an addiction to our own self-righteousness. Or maybe I noticed it because when I compare the input with of my own efforts toward transformation with the current state of affairs in our city or in our church or in the world, it is easy to conclude with Isaiah's servant that I have nothing to show for a life of hard work. Whatever the reasons, the thing that I noticed in all of these texts this week is that God could care less about our feelings of limited impact. The servant in Isaiah, whose identity is a mystery, says, I have nothing to show for a life of hard work. And God replies, you know what? It's not a big enough job for my servant just to recover the tribes of Jacob, merely to round up the strays of Israel. I've decided to set you up as a light to the nations so that my salvation becomes global. Hear that again. Isaiah says, I've accomplished nothing with my life. And God's response is, you know, servant, I've thought it over and I've decided that rescuing your own nation from its 70-year exile is not enough. I'm going to use you to save the whole world. How does that even make sense? And then you read Paul's letter to the divided church at Corinth, a church threatening to come apart because of internal divisions. I give thanks to God, Paul says, because God has given you everything you need. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. You are lacking in nothing to be who God has called you to be, to do what God has called you to do. And then in John's gospel, Jesus says to random strangers, fisher people on the beach, you want to know God for yourselves? Come and see. It's like the text is saying to exiles nursing their wounds, to church folk having trouble breaking bread with people they don't think are worthy enough. And to ordinary people who never thought of themselves as anything other than ordinary, yes, you will make a difference, but not because you are smarter or wiser or harder working or more woke than anyone else. You will make a difference because I called you for a purpose. I have given you everything you need. You are lacking in nothing, which seems rather crazy to me right now in this time and place. So crazy, I was afraid this morning to say it to you. It's like God is saying to us, you can defeat white supremacy and usher in a new age of equality and justice and peace and inclusion with others because I have given you all everything you need to do it. You can prosper as a church because you lack nothing. I have already given you everything that you need. Your lives will make a difference because, hey, people, this isn't some two-bit hustler who called you into this work. I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. That is the message of these texts, which is easier to see than it is to claim. I mean, it sounds really arrogant and self-centered and delusional to me. God has called me or called us for big purposes in the world. It's like the kinds of things that people involved in cults say to each other. TV preacher crazy talk. 
I can see it in the text, but can I own it for me or for you? And yet sometimes I wonder how our lives would be different if we actually believed in God's call and claim on our lives. You know, if we spent less time whining over the things that are missing in our public discourse and started noticing the gifts that God has given to us to contribute to our common life together. Or if we spent less energy fretting over what we're missing in our congregation and paid more time, more time recognizing the abundant gifts that God has given to us to share with each other. If we worried less over our sense of our own limitations and listened more to God's purposes for us, God's call to us in the world, because which actually is more self-centered? Our confidence in our own cynical judgment about what's possible in the world right now or our confidence in God's sense of what human beings are capable of? Our lives would be different, maybe not in the way that we think. I don't know whether we'd be able to reverse the tide of the fear that has overtaken so many of our neighbors, so many of us. I don't know whether we would be able to stop the next war in the Middle East or the next shooter at home. I doubt we would avoid legitimate disagreements between people of good faith who want to see the planet saved, who want to see peace realized and justice enacted. I just wonder that if we believed that God had called us to stand for justice, that we too might be able to do things like sing leaning on the everlasting arms with the clan threatening to burn the place down. If we believe that God had called us to embody a part of the kingdom of heaven with people of all races, religions, and creeds, maybe we'd be able to take whatever beatings we had to take. If we believe that God had called us to ride on the freedom bus or not, we'd be able to sleep at night knowing that the great determining factor in the success of our projects is rarely our own competence or will but God's. If we believe that God had called us to a higher purpose, then we'd be able to live a life of purpose with a peace of heart that no president, no violent actor, no bully could ever take away from us. Which sounds to me a lot like the kingdom of heaven on earth. The one where we get to taste a bit of the peace and enjoy a bit of the freedom and justice and joy together even before it's fully realized. The one where we are too busy trusting in God's love to fear. The one where we see that abundant life isn't something we wait for at the end of time and is already among us in shared meals and shared tears and shared work that heals the world. If we believed that God had called us for a purpose, if we believed that we actually 
lacked nothing. If we believed in the power of God's love more than the limitations of our own. If we believed. <laughs> 